Welcome to Cross Lane Community Church, where we are committed to bringing people to Jesus. We hope you enjoy this online message. Do you ever get tired of your boring day-to-day life? I know I do. I should say that I did. Then I decided to do something about it. You see, conventional wisdom says that you live your life and then your parents die and they give you whatever they have left over, an inheritance. (laughs) I'm sorry, that just wasn't good enough for me. So I decided to do something about it, you know? I want my money right now. So one day, I walked right up to my dad and I said to him, Dad, I want what's coming to me right now. That's what my youngest son said to me. I want what's coming to me right now. All I could think of that moment was, I'd like to give you what's coming to you right now. I brought him into this world, and I can make another one just like him. But he's my son, and I love him. So I gave him his money and told him if he could have a better life on his own without me, so be it. He packed his bags, and the next thing I knew, I was out of there. Kissed this boring place goodbye. I had places to go, people to see. So the first thing I did was, my son got lost. I love him, but he's no Magellan. I heard he had to stop for directions at least four times before he even made it out of our hometown. You know what? No, not four, okay? It was three. And, and one of them wasn't even my fault. I, I couldn't understand what the guy was saying. I was just like, okay, thank you. And besides that, The only reason I can't follow directions is because somebody never taught me to follow directions. Don't go there. Okay, look, the point is I got out of there and I started to live it up. I mean, I had more friends than I knew what to do with. I was eating like a king. I had the finest clothes and the ladies. (laughs) What can I say about the ladies? I can say something about the ladies. They were women, but they were not ladies. Okay, okay, you know what? Never mind. The, the thing was, life was good. Until. Until my son's money ran out around the same time a recession hit our country. There, there wasn't any work to be found. I, I mean, I tried. I really tried. But there just weren't jobs. Eventually, I found a job. It wasn't bad. It was a manager's position. It was an associate position at the... Okay, I was a bacon preparation assistant. Which means? I fed pigs. I hated that job. I didn't pay much. I I didn't have enough money for a place to live. There were many days I didn't even have enough money to eat. Sometimes I was so hungry, I would gladly have eaten the disgusting scraps I was feeding the pigs, but I couldn't. They wouldn't let me. So hunger pains is a constant reminder of how I'd squandered everything my father had given me. I lived in agony day after day. Day after day after day I'd watch and I'd wait for my son to come home and my heart would ache as only a parent's heart could for his own child. But hear me on this. I never gave up on him. I never gave up on him. I knew that it would happen one day. One day it hit me. One day I realized that The lowliest of my father's workers lived better than I did. At at least they had a place to live and food to eat, and I didn't have either one of those things. So I wondered, what if he never comes to his senses? What if he lets pride just get in the way? No, no. I will see him again. Again and again. These thoughts ran through my head as I began my journey back to my father's house. 
I knew what I would do. Um, there's no way that I would accept a handout and, and I couldn't expect him to take me back as his son. So I would ask him to hire me on as a worker. I mean, maybe he would do that, just maybe. Maybe today will be the day that my son will come home. That's what I would say every morning when I'd wake up. Maybe today will be the day that I would see him off in the distance as he makes his way back home. Home. That word means so many things. Comfort, care, security, love, home. I couldn't believe I was just a few hundred yards away from it. It was a beautiful day. I was sitting on my front porch and that's when I saw him. He stood up out of his chair. He looked in my direction. He squinted his eyes to get a better look at me. And then I began to wonder, what if he doesn't take me back? What if, what if I get to him and he just looks at me and he says, I, I told you so, I told, I told you. you so. Some of you would just roll your eyes every time I mentioned my son. But I knew he would come back. I just knew. I just knew this was a bad idea. I knew I shouldn't have done this, and so I just stopped. He just stood there. I couldn't move. I couldn't just stand there, so he jumped. My dad literally jumped off the porch. I'd never seen him do anything like that before. It was like he was this little kid who was excited about something. And then it hit me. He was excited about me. So you know what I did next? I, I ran. ran. My heart was pounding so fast, I just had to get to him. I'd never seen him run so fast. He was running at me with his arms stretched out wide as if to say, Welcome home! Welcome home! That's what I kept shouting to him, but I don't know if he could hear me, so I just kept shouting it over and over. All I wanted to do was just scoop him up in my arms like he was when he was like a little child and just let him know that everything was going to be okay. And as I got closer to him, I could see tears running down his face. He was crying. Tears of joy. And you know what my son did next? I jumped. I was nervous. I was excited. And so I literally jumped. And you know what my father did? Well, I fell backwards. He's a big boy. <laughs> and then, and then he hugged me. And he embraced me like only a father can. I kept saying over and over again, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I don't deserve to be called your son. My son is back. Get him some clean clothes. Uh, let's give him a meal. No, a feast. For my son will no longer live as an orphan. For all my hopes have come true. I guess it was hope. Hope that made me start that journey back home. Hope that got me through all the miles. A hope that my father would take me back and somehow I could be forgiven. Forgiven. It's all forgiven. And I will never bring it up ever again. There is no shame, there is no guilt, for my son was lost, and now he is found. To the Cross Lane Community Church, if you're new to us, we are so glad that you decided to join us uh, for services this morning. You honor us with your presence, and we hope that you have, uh, if nothing else, found a dry place. I can't even say that for the stage. There's a drip happening behind me as I speak. So if uh, if it all gives way and I get covered in... in uh, Insulation. We're just gonna. I'm just gonna pretend like it didn't even happen. Okay. Uh, today, all across this country, all around the world, people will celebrate this empty tomb. And 
it really says a lot about God that he loves us enough to send Jesus to die for us that that life would end in a uh, a death on a cross and and that at the very end of that story there's an empty tomb what does that empty tomb mean and where was Jesus going I mean after that where does he go he goes home he goes home home is really when you stop to think about it home is God that's where we all want to be and that's where when we are with God that's when life gets best for us that's when we feel the safest that's when we feel most taken care of that's when it's all right when we're with God Jesus died on a cross for our sins he raised from the dead to prove to us who that he was who he said he was we celebrate the resurrected Christ this morning in Luke 19, Jesus said, here is the reason I came. I came really for one purpose, to seek and to save the lost. Now, here's a thought I want to throw out this morning. You couldn't have lost anything if you didn't first possess it. The only things that we talk about in terms of being lost are things that we at one time possessed. And we use that term a lot. I use that term a lot around here. I use the term lost in respect to uh, lost people. I'll talk about lost people um, people who've never made a commitment to Christ. And, and we kind of view them as that way. You know, we look at them as people that we want to be in our group, people that we want to be kind of in the, not the club necessarily, because we don't look at our church that way, but we want people to belong here. And so we, we talk about lost people. But I don't really think God sees people as lost the way we see lost people. He doesn't, I don't think God describes them that way. I don't think God sees them that way at all. No matter how we would label them, Christian, non-Christian, believer, unbeliever, lost or found, or any of those kind of terms, I think that he sees them all as his children because he created them. He created you and me. He does not see us as lost and found. That's not the way God relates to us or sees us. He simply says, some of my children that I made, some of them haven't quite figured out what I want to do in their life. And some of them haven't come to me the way I want them to come to me. To him, he doesn't see them any differently um, than one from another. He just sees them all the same because he loves us. And the truth is, they're really not lost. His, in fact, if we were going to say, if we were going to go with that a little bit and say uh, that certain ones are lost, I would argue that God is more singularly focused on them. And you have more, if you, if, if you would be here this morning, you would say, you know what, I, I, could, I would probably say I'm a lost person. I think that God probably... Uh, to the exclusion of some of the rest of us, and I'll defend that position in just a minute, focuses in on you. Let me see if I can um, make that make sense, this idea that, that um, God might focus in on one, not necessarily to the exclusion, I don't know that I want to say it that way, but he focuses in on some and, and maybe leaves some of the other ones be for a little bit. Let me see if I can make that make sense. I think we're all losers, not not, you know, loser that's not what I mean by that um, I don't mean that the way it sounds but all of us at one time or another have lost something right I mean you had it in your possession you look up and it's gone now those of you who know me really well know that I am not a real organized guy if you could see my office in fact my office is designed a certain way it's designed to receive guests in a portion of my office that's a little cleaner and a little nicer than the place where I actually do my work which is just piles and papers and books and 
and it's, it's a mess. And if someone were to actually come in and try and clean that up and make it neater, they would actually cause me problems because I wouldn't be able to find anything then. I may be messy and unorganized, but I, I typically am able to lay hands on the important things that I need. I don't lose a whole lot of stuff, but, but I still struggle with that just like anybody would. Whenever I leave the house in the morning, I need what I call the big three. There's three things that I, I need to make sure that I've got. I, there's, there's three little clusters. I need, the first cluster is my iPod, my, my wallet, and my phone. Okay, can't go anywhere without those because just got to have those three things. And then I got to make sure I have my laptop bag, which in my laptop bag is my life. My secretary makes fun of me, but I can literally produce just about anything you would need out of that, even food sometimes. So, um, yeah, look at me. Yeah, he hadn't missed many, many meals. So, um, even food. And then I have two sets of keys. So when I leave the house, I have all those things in one hand. I have my keys in the other, and I have my laptop bag thrown over my shoulder for the other. I've put my keys down and lost my keys more times than I can count. It's just, and, and when you find them sometimes, you ever lose your keys and find your keys and go, what in the world was I thinking to leave them there? How did they get there? I don't even remember being in that room. And yet that's where they were. Um, I'm not describing anything that's foreign to you, am I? You, you know what it is to lose something. Maybe some of you are chronic losers in that regard. Uh, but here's something I would say about those lost things. The search intensifies with the value of the thing that is lost. If it's really important to you, you will knock yourself out and you will go crazy looking for that thing because it's so valuable. Now, certain things, if they're not really valuable and important to you, your, your basic attitude is, I'll buy another one. I'm not going to spend the time it takes looking for it. But if it's really, really valuable, if it's got sentimental value, if, it, if it's something you spend a lot of money for, you're going to take some time and look for it. The fact is that the search can sometimes be quite passionate about those things that we misplace. You ever lost one of your kids in a store or at the mall? You know that sick feeling that you get when everything's happy and then all of a sudden you can't find them? And you think, well, they're just right in the corner. And then you go around the corner and you don't find them around the corner. And something in your heart and your mind switches and you get that sick feeling that kind of comes up into your heart. And you think to yourself, oh my goodness that this is not good. The first thought I have had on occasion when that's happened to me is, I hope my wife doesn't find out that I've just <laughs> lost one of the kids. And then you find them, and you don't scream at them, you don't paddle them, you don't get mad at them. You, all you want to do, just like the video says, you just want to scoop them up and hold them tight. You don't want to yell at them. I mean, you do kind of scold them like, do you, don't you know that I was worried about you? I mean, we say those kind of things. But we're not interested at that point, are we, in, in doling out all kinds of discipline to our kids who've disappeared on us for a few minutes. That's not really what it's about. You've lost something that's valuable to you, and the search intensified because your child is valuable to you. And when you lost something, isn't it true that you really don't take inventory? Like, I don't lose my keys and go, well, I still got my wallet, you know. No, I want to find my keys. I mean, I, I can't spend any money if I can't go anywhere, so you've got to have all that stuff. So it's, you don't take inventory. I mean, there wasn't any part of me that, that when I, you know, I lose one kid, I look up and say, you know, when Delaney's missing in a store, I don't look up and go, well, I got Bennett and Tanner. <laughs> I don't think so. 
In fact, and I think my boys would understand this, if I can't find Delaney, my search is going to intensify to the point that I'm really not worried about them. They're not the priority. They're not the first thing on my mind. In fact, I might even go so far as to say they're not even in my mind if I've lost Delaney. And you could say that about any one of them. If one of them goes missing, I'm not going to worry too much about the other two. I'm going to spend my time focused in on where is my lost daughter or my lost son. Here's what I know. You want to know what Easter's all about? What this celebration is all about is not about the two that we have. It's about the one that's lost. Now, God enjoys our worship service. I think that God has really enjoyed... uh, what we've done this morning he's enjoyed your voices he's enjoyed our communion he's enjoyed i think he's enjoyed our morning and he's he's happy that we're here and we've gathered together but we're here and 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 it's easy for us to to think well you know i'm here i'm not gonna worry about anybody else but we we miss the fact that the life and mission the death burial and resurrection of jesus was about the kids that are missing he says that's what i came to earth to do to seek and to save that which is lost. That's why I died and resurrected, because I'm on a search and rescue mission for my kids that have kind of gotten away. God sees people who don't know him as his kids that that he deeply loves, who he's not in relationship with. That's how he sees them. In fact, Jesus is so strong on this point that there are stories, three stories in one chapter of the Bible that kind of make this uh, point, and I want to kind of look at those this morning. It all starts with in, in Luke 15 w- w- when Jesus hears something. This is what Luke 15 verse 1 says. Now the tax collectors and sinners, and this is the term that the religious crowd had used to describe those who were far from God. They called them sinners. Look at those sinners over there. Said it with disdain. Now, you know, right, that we're all sinners. We're all messed up. We all got problems. You know that, right? I got all kinds of issues. In fact, if you knew sometimes what was going on in my world, you wouldn't even let me preach to you, okay? We we all have that. We're all sinners. But here they are classifying this bunch of people as sinners. Do you know what a sinner is? A sinner is someone who does something that you don't do. That's what a sinner is, okay? When we have problems, we don't don't call it sin. We don't call ourselves sinners. We just say, well, we have issues. That's how we describe ourselves. We have issues. We're not really sinners. That's for bad people. The tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. In other words, Jesus, how can you welcome them? How can you sit down and have a meal with them? Don't you know what kind of people they are? They don't have their lives together. They don't believe in you. How in the world could you hang out with a crowd of people like that? And it says they muttered. They're kind of talking among themselves. And even if Jesus couldn't hear them audibly, they kind of forget the fact that he's God. I mean, can you imagine being around Jesus knowing that nothing you think is really going to go <laughs> unheard? <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> they're muttering and they're having this p- private conversation and 
You know, he, Jesus hears him. Look at him. He's hanging out with those sinners. He welcomes them. He, he eats with those people. Can you imagine? And they thought he was crazy. And Jesus, instead of confronting their poor theology, he does what Jesus does a lot. He doesn't tell stories. If you read through the New Testament and you really watch the way Jesus handles people, very, very seldom does he theologize with people. He doesn't get into these grand debates and go head to head and try and you know, prove his intellect and things like that, stuff that we do. He doesn't do it that way. In fact, just a side note, there's a big thing going on among a bunch of um, uh, preachers these days over this one book that's been written, and it just makes me sick. And everybody's just out to prove how smart they are. And I just can't even imagine Jesus getting into the debate that all these guys are in. Jesus didn't do that. What Jesus did is he told stories. So he, he, he says in verse 4, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. And at that point, the, the, the people that are around Jesus, they all kind of lock in because even if the, these guys didn't have sheep, they knew somebody that had sheep. This is something that was a part of the culture. Everybody had sheep. And so Jesus says, you know, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and he loses one and all the men are going, yeah, we understand what that would be like. That'd be really bad. That's our income. That's our bread and butter. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And you can imagine the guys in the crowd going, absolutely he would leave the 99. Because that sheep's valuable, and you don't just let one wander off. And I would even leave the other ones that I had to go after the one that was lost. Verse 5, and when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, verse 6, and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. In other words, I once had it, and now I have it back again. Verse 7. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. In other words, those people that you're classifying as sinners... Those are my kids, and if you really want to know the truth about it, I would leave you 99 in a heartbeat to go find the lost one. And then he tells a story that would embrace a very large portion of society, but a section of society that had been very dis disenfranchised. He's going to tell a story about women losing a lost coin. Verse 8, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Now let me give you a little context there. Every little girl would be given by her daddy at some point in her life 10 silver coins. It was a dowry of sorts. It would, be, it would be used later on in this little girl's life to help her attract a man. As the, as the girls would get older and they would start to think about potential suitors and potential husbands, they would want those 10 coins. And so what they would do, oftentimes they would, they would make a headdress and they would weave those 10 coins into the headdress. The worst thing that could happen is that you would not have all 10 coins in your headdress because your esteem was tied to this. Your worth, your value was literally tied to these 10 coins that you had. And if you only had eight or you only had nine, you didn't have as many as the other girls. And it was kind of a way to say, look, you know, look what I have. And so these guys, when they were looking for a wife, if they came across someone who only had eight or nine coins, they didn't have the full ten. Ah, you know, thanks, but I don't think I'm interested. So it's a big deal. I mean, it's a, it's a really big deal. The, the guys would be saying, you know, I don't, I don't think you want her. She's not got all of her coins. 
Her elevator doesn't. Not sure about her. Suppose you lose one, Jesus said. And all the ladies thought, oh, that would be awful. I mean, when Jesus is telling this story, the ladies in the crowd are thinking to themselves, oh, I just can't imagine what it would be like to lose one of those coins. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? To which the ladies would have said, you better believe it, you would. You would turn over the furniture to find that lost coin. That's a big deal. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one. And I think Jesus might have looked at the other uh, religious leaders at that point when he says that last part. I, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels over, of God over one, over one sinner who repents. I think Jesus probably looked in their direction to make the point about the sinners that they'd been talking about. In other words, I love them. That group of people that you're classifying, I love them. That's the whole reason I came. Now, at that point, you can imagine that they might have said, okay, Jesus, great story, I understand the point, but we're lost, we're, or we're not lost. We're, we're, we're right here in front of you. It's not like we've gone away. We're, we're right here, okay? We're not lost. And then Jesus, in his brilliance, connects these two stories with a, a third story that I think will define the word lost for us this morning. Because as Jesus uses the word lost, he's not using it in terms of G-O-N-E as in geographically lost. That's not the point Jesus is trying to make. Lost means there is a disconnect relationally. Lost means that I'm not as close as I used to be or have never been. In other words, he tells the story, and you probably know it, he tells the story, if, if you've been in church at all, you've heard the story of the prodigal, and even if you haven't gone to church, you've heard the term prodigal son. Well, I'm going to kind of highlight this morning the, pro, the story of the prodigal son, the story of a man who had two sons, and the younger son comes to him and says, Dad, I would like my inheritance early. Now, people in that generation would have been appalled that this guy would do that. You just weren't supposed to do that. It was kind of like coming to him and saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead, because if you were dead, I would have my money, and I, if you could just have the money now. And the son was way more concerned about the money, and truth be told, he basically was saying, I love the money that I'm going to get from you more than I love being with you. And the son was very geographically found. It wasn't like the dad didn't know where he was standing right in front of him, but the dad also knew there is a relational disconnect. You ever had that with one of your kids? A relational disconnect. You know exactly where they are, but they're lost a little bit. And that's what's going on with this dad and this son. And the, the, the dad's thinking, you know what? I mean, he's right in front of me, but he's lost. And I may as well just go ahead and give him what he wants so that he can get out and he can see the rest of the world and the world can kick him around and beat him up and he can realize this is home. And this is where he needs to be. And the dad's saying, you know, I know where you are, but I know we're not together, so here's the money. And the Bible says this kid goes off and spends all of his money in wild living and partying and having a good time. And honestly, when times are good, who needs dad, right? When things are good, who needs dad? Isn't that true? You know who it's hardest for me to talk to about Jesus? The hardest person for me to talk to about Jesus is the guy with a good job, 
He's got the 2.5 kids. He's got a beautiful wife. He's got the minivan. He's got the sports car. He's got a great house. Lives in a good neighborhood. Takes great vacations. It's hard to tell that guy that he needs Jesus. I may know he needs Jesus, but he doesn't know he needs Jesus. But an interesting thing happens when the beautiful wife gets sick. Or an interesting thing happens when the son or the daughter finally turns and says, I'm out of here. Or worse yet, they get sick. All of a sudden, something really interesting happens if I lose my job and I'm in, on the verge of losing my house. Now I'm willing to listen to someone tell me about Jesus where maybe before I wasn't. When things are going great, nobody really wants to hear about Jesus. But when we get desperate, tell me about God. In our story, a recession hits the land. <laughs> Does that sound familiar to anybody? And all of a sudden, no job, no money, and the economy takes a dip, and there's this great pain. In fact, the Bible says in his misery, he comes to his senses. It's unfortunate but true that most of us will uh, get close to God, not when times are good, but when things aren't really going all that well. Most of us will only come back home to God when we really feel desperate. Miserable times will actually reveal our condition, and that's when we say, you know what? This isn't fun anymore. Uh, th this is a problem. I, I'm a long way from where I need to be. In our current economic downturn, I'm told that there are three industries doing quite well. Do you know what those three industries are? Bars are doing great. <laughs> the drug industry is doing wonderful. Pharmaceuticals and, and uh, drug stores can't open enough drug stores and churches. Interestingly enough, all three of those are designed to deal with pain. I believe one of those does much better with the idea of dealing with pain than the others. When you get desperate, you need God. Like the prodigal son, when you get desperate, it reveals the fact that you just got away from God. The problem is, a lot of us can be geographically found. We're in church and we're geographically there, but relationally we're not. I mean, there's some people, it's possible that you're in the room this morning and you've been going to church your whole life and you very seldom miss church. But the truth be told, you look up and you say to yourself, you know what, I'm way over here and God seems way over there. And I'm not really sure how it happened, but there's this real relational disconnect and there's a distance between me and God, and I'm not even really sure how it happened. See, some people think that, that religion and doing church is what God wants. Can I just tell you, that's not what God wants. Some people have no idea that there's supposed to be a relationship with Christ and all they know is that they feel way over here and God's way over there and they're really not quite sure how it happened they just feel the distance and then pain starts to happen in our life and then we really feel it when things are good we just kind of wander off we didn't really mean to we didn't do it on purpose I think some people look up all of a sudden and say how in the world did I get here I like to take my family to the beach. My wife really loves to go to the beach. It's fun for me, too. I like to sit there with my clock and make sure that the waves come in on time like they're supposed to. And if you've ever been to the beach with your family, you know exactly what I'm going to describe for you. With coolers and chairs and beach towels and play toys and sunscreen and drinks and food 
and you drag all that stuff down to the beach, half of which we probably don't need. You can, it just, I, I sit and watch the tourists like me, and then I watch the locals who come with their little beach towel and their little umbrella, and they stick it in the sand, and then when they sit there for half hour, and they get up and go back to their car, and they're out of there just like that. You know, I'm like, how, how, why can't we be like that? You know, we got 40 million things. And I like to sit under the umbrella when it's not rolling down the beach. I like to, you know, when I get it in this, and I like to sit under the umbrella and just read. It's fun for me. And I look up and check on the kids. Hey, Dad, how you doing? And the interesting thing about the beach and the surf is that the waves don't come straight in, do they? They come in at an angle, and then they go back out. They come in at an angle and go back out. Well, what happens over time as your kids play in the beach they start in front of you where you kind of set up camp, and 20 minutes later, they've gone out and gone down and gone down. And, and then you, you look up after, you know, 20 pages of reading, and it's like, oh, my goodness, my kids are way down there. And they, they're, they're oblivious, you know. And so you have to get up and say, hey, kids, come on back up this way, you know. You, you can recognize the parents. They're the ones going like this all the time. And the kids, you know, finally get their attention. Oh, okay. And then they come back, and they're right in front of you. And then you go back to reading your book again. 20 minutes later, come on back up. And so by the end of the day, your arm's kind of worn out because you've done that all day. And I just think that that describes a lot of the people that love God. It's not that they don't love God, and it's not that they don't care. But they look up and... They're not where they started. And they're far from God. And they wonder how that happened. How did I get way over here? A few people, it isn't their story. That's not their story. They've just given up on church. In fact, they would say that they hate the institutional church. There's even books that have been written uh, in the last five years or so. One of them, basically, the premise of the book is, it's not Jesus that I don't like, it's the church I can't stand. And can I just make a revelation to you as the pastor of this church? I kind of am on board with that a little bit. I do not like the institutional church very much. So if you're here this morning and you think, man, I, don't, I do not like churches. Churches just kind of weird me out. I'm with you. I, I, you know what I love about Cross Lane? We are not normal. If this is your first Sunday, this is not a normal church. Tell me how many churches started with Aerosmith this morning, Okay. I'm just saying, I thought that was really cool. I don't like the institutional church. I think the institutional church has just completely messed up the story of Jesus. And they've made it about a bunch of stuff that it's not about. It's simple. We are a people in this building, at least, hopefully this morning, you are surrounded by people who are passionate about loving Jesus. And we just, you know, there's some things that are important to us and we want certain behaviors and things, yes, but, but, but before any of that, we love Jesus and we're passionate about Him. And we want to be sensitive to you. If you're new and you're trying to figure out who God is and how do I, how do I get close, you just need to know you're among people who love you and love Jesus and we're, we'll do all we can to help that connection happen for you. We don't need another institution. We need people that love Jesus who will make it simple, who will make it about God's glory, who will make it about bringing people to Jesus. Some people are mad at God. They, they feel as though God has in some way let them down. 
Whatever it is, they, they look up and they're, they're just not where they used to be. You know, you, you can be geographically found. We can know where you are. But there's a distance between you and God. I got good news for you this morning. That's what Easter is all about. Easter is about the fact that God died for you and proved his worth and proved that he was who he said he was when he rose from the dead. And he came to seek and to look for and to find those who've kind of gotten away. And he doesn't see you as the outside crowd and he doesn't see you as a sinner the way we kind of see each other. He doesn't see you that way. He sees you as his child. And honestly, he just wants you to come home. That's why Jesus tells this story. And the Bible says in verse 20 of Luke 15, the son says, you know, I'm going back home. His plan wasn't to go back home and be in relationship with the father. He had a bad view of dad. This story is a story that Jesus told. It didn't actually happen. But the point that Jesus is trying to make is that the father in the story represents God. And the boy the kid that's gone off does not see his dad in the right light. I want you to understand that. Many of you who are far from God, maybe if you're in the room this morning, you're far from God. If you are, you probably don't have the right view of God. You probably think he's mad at you. You think that he just can't, you know, that if you do come back to him, he's going to make you pay. Or you think if I go back, I, you know, it's just not going to be the same. And this kid is thinking to himself, I can't go back after spending all this money and after doing all this stuff. My dad's not going to want to see me. But I'll go back and I'll work for him. I won't expect to be a a son anymore. I'll just work for him. It's got to be better than slopping hogs. And that's when we read in verse 20, so he got up, he went to his father, and, and this To me, this is one of the most beautiful sentences in the whole Bible. This might be one of the most favorite phrases of mine in the entire Bible. I love this picture. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. That says to me that the dad was scanning the horizon looking for his lost son. It wasn't like he said, well, he's gone. I'm just going to go ahead about my business. No, he was scanning the horizon while he was still a long way off. That tells me he's, he never gave up on him. And in the eyes of the son, he didn't think himself a son anymore, but he never stopped being a son in the eyes of a father. I ask you this morning, whose eyes are most important? The eyes of the father. It doesn't matter how you see yourself. It matters how God sees you, and God sees you as a son or a daughter, and he wants you home. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And I want that picture in your head this morning. If you feel far from God this morning, I want a picture in your mind of you in an embrace with your heavenly father. I want you to feel like you can come home God doesn't care what you've done. He doesn't care what you've said. He just wants you back. See, we get this part mixed up. We think that somehow we've got to get it all figured out before we can come home. God says, just come home. We'll get it figured out. We'll, we'll, we'll get it figured out. We'll, you know, we'll sort through all the stuff that's happened. We'll figure out the mistakes you've made and what the consequences are for those, and we'll get all that sorted out. Just come home. 
Christina was a 15-year-old girl. She decided that she didn't want to live at home anymore, and she ran away. This is a true story. She ran away. She was not far from a big city. And once she got out into the city, the city was not kind to her, and she realized that life as she expected it to be wasn't the reality. And in order to make ends meet, she began to... um, she, she became a prostitute and a drug addict. And she was wandering around the city doing what she could just to, to, to survive, basically. And while her mother knew pretty much that she was in the city, she wasn't necessarily geographically lost. She kind of knew where she was. She did not have a relationship with her, and she didn't see her and didn't get to talk to her. And her mother, Maria, decided that she was going to set out and find her daughter. Christina. So she went to a drugstore. She used every bit of money she had to go into one of those photo booths, you know, that that you can take pictures of yourself and it kicks out photos. She had a stack of pictures of herself. And she wrote on the back of every one of those pictures and she started to try and figure out the places maybe that her daughter would go, the bars and the hotels and the places where the the not-so-nice people hang out. And she started to put her picture on, on doorposts and on telephone poles, anywhere that she thought might catch her daughter's attention. And as the daughter started to move through the city, all of a sudden she starts to see pictures of her mom. And at first, she was embarrassed by it. But over time, she just kept seeing her mom's face. Everywhere she went, she would see her mom's face. And for a while, she couldn't even look. She would see her picture, and she'd look away. She just couldn't even imagine that she could go home. Finally, one day, she got past all of her embarrassment. She got past all of her anger, and she reached up, and she took off the picture. And she turned it over, and it said, I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've become. Just come home. And Christina went home that day. Today, you can take this to the bank. God would put his face all over the city to get to you. There's not a thing God wouldn't do. And we, you know, preachers make it about come here, come to the church. You need to come to the church. God would come to you. God comes to you in a cloud. He comes to you in a song. He comes to you in a best friend. He comes to you in your desperation. He speaks to you. He calls out to you. That voice you've been hearing, don't ignore that voice. You're not making that up. That's God calling out to you. And He wants more than for you to be geographically found this morning. He wants you to be relationally found. He wants to be in relationship with you. He wants your heart back. He wants you home. I want to say something on God's behalf this morning. He doesn't care what you've done or what you've become. He just wants you home. And once you get home, you can get all that other stuff worked out. Just come home first. And I just want to ask you this Easter, are you ready? Are you ready to come home? Is there somebody in the room this morning that you would say, you know what, geographically, I'm here. In fact, I'm here most Sundays. But relationally, I'm not found.
relationally, I'm lost. There's a disconnect. If that describes you, let me tell you, when you see an empty tomb on Easter, that is God beckoning you home. I did it for you. Come home. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks this morning for being a God who loves us enough to die for us. And Lord, the story would be pretty grim if it ended there, but it doesn't end there. The ladies went to an empty tomb on Easter morning. Jesus was gone. His body had been raised from the dead. That's what we believe. Our whole faith is pinned on that one event in history that Jesus raised from the dead. And if it's not true, we're wasting our time this morning. But we believe it is true. And we believe that we can have a relationship with a risen Christ this morning. And so this morning I pray for anyone in this room, someone maybe who's never gone to church or someone who's been to church for the last year but relationally feels a distance between you and them. Father, would you, would you speak to their spirit this morning and tell them that they can come home. They can come home. They can know you. They can leave whatever has been going on behind and just come home. Father, I give you thanks and praise that you are a God who is able to make that possible this morning. That you love us this much. That you would spare no expense to draw us unto you. It's in Jesus' name we pray this morning. Amen.